Welcome to Wonder Tour with Derek Cobb and Drew Perot, where we are learning leadership lessons from your favorite stories. Hi, I'm Brian Nutwell. And I'm Drew Perot. And we are on a journey to become better leaders by touring fantastic worlds and inspiring lore by going on a wonder tour. We connect leadership concepts to story context because it sticks to our brains better. You can find out more at wondertourpodcast.com. Wonder Tour returns to Lord of the Rings, this time specifically The Hobbit Part 1, An Unexpected Journey. In our first episode, we're going to talk about Gandalf and how can we lead like Gandalf. Because when you watch this movie, you just aspire to be like Gandalf. He's in this role where he's constantly helping others to develop magnanimous character. He's strategically putting people in uncomfortable spots, like all the different times that he allows the dwarves and Bilbo to get themselves into trouble. You know, he kind of separates himself from the group a little bit, they get in trouble, and then he allows them to solve different pieces of that puzzle. And then he always comes back in though, and he makes sure that when things are going badly, that he's there with the team, and he is willing to sacrifice for the team in order Order to move forward. We'll contrast that a little bit to Thorin's role, where Thorin is destined to lead this mission. He has a very clear goal, and he's charismatic. His main issue is that he's generally about himself, which contrasts really strongly with Gandalf, who is never about himself and is always about achieving this larger vision and how he can help people to achieve it. So lastly, our mountaintop will bring us to the relationship between the party and Bilbo, and how Gandalf will seek to answer the question, why is Bilbo a necessary final member of this party? When you watch this movie or read this book for the first time, you always have that question in your head. You know, why are they trying so hard to get Bilbo to be a part of this team? And so we really want to, on Wonder Tour, understand what makes Bilbo critical to this mission. Welcome to Wonder Tour. All right, welcome back, Wanderers. I'm Brian. I'm here with Drew again, and we're here to talk about The Hobbit and Unexpected Journey. We'll just get the obvious stuff out of the way right up front. We know that this movie was uh, spectacular in probably more ways than it strictly needed to be. It was uh, it was successful in the theaters, but it uh, hasn't stood the test of time nearly as well as the original Lord of the Rings series or some of the other movies we like to talk about. It. So, so why are we bringing this one in, Drew? What do we like about this one that stuck with you enough that we wanted to kind of dig into it for leadership lessons? I think the first piece of it is, even though it strayed pretty far from The Hobbit, the book, it still kept that core narrative. And the core narrative was so strong in The Hobbit book. I mean, it's what made The Hobbit such a classic that, at least in Western culture, kids read it as they grow up. I mean, most people are familiar with it. So it has that strong narrative arc. It has like the hero's journey. When you think of the hero's journey, you think of Lord of the Rings, you think of The Hobbit. This is the best examples of the hero's journey. This is probably as you're growing up, whether you knew it was called the hero's journey or not, this is when you first had familiarity with that idea like, oh, there's this very clear story arc. And these other stories seem like they're based on Lord of the Rings. Well, not really. They're all kind of based on the hero's journey, but... It really cemented the hero's journey kind of in the current vernacular almost. In the, yeah, the cultural consciousness. And it, it's interesting. It would be fun to do a little bit more scholarship on this, but I feel like Tolkien and Campbell's work on the hero's journey kind of sprung from the same the same root works. Like they're both very educated in the mythical tales of Western culture. You see a lot of similarities in alignment here. Yeah, and you're yeah. right. Like I, we were joking earlier, you know, this may be a very specific Midwest United States reference, but this movie is like the Cheesecake Factory of movies. There's like, 300 items on the menu and every single one of them is 5,000 calories and sometimes you just want to take a break and have a cup of coffee 
Like it's just it's <laughs> more it's more of everything piled on top of more of everything, and it's a little bit exhausting. But it does have these wonderful character archetypes. It's a sumptuously visually beautiful movie when it's not way over the top of CGI. So there's some really cool stuff to talk about in here. And really, anytime you get to hang out with Ian McKellen as Gandalf and Martin Freeman as Bilbo, is it, that's a good time for me. So yeah, so let's you get you get that richness of a Hobbit-like meal. And sometimes you know I'm not a Hobbit, and so I don't know if I need that Hobbit-like <laughs> meal with a thousand different courses and all this rich food. It's it's a little bit much. That said, the character development and the story arc is still awesome. The acting by a lot of these characters is great. And overall, it's still a journey that you just really want to be on. That's what makes this so great and why, even though I, I really did not like these movies when I initially watched them, and I still don't, I'm still willing to go back and watch them because it's just so fun. All right, well, let's get into it then. So we've got, you know, I think we're going to spend some time talking about the adventure itself, the personal journey in the second episode. But I really wanted to frame this first one up with the leadership archetypes and with what we see from these, you know, the figureheads at the front of this movie, just like you called out in our intro. So we have, you know, kind of Thorin is more what you think of the classical leader. He's charismatic. He's extremely goal focused. He's pulled together a team of people that all believe in the same mission. And part of the reason that they're behind him is because they believe that he's 100% committed. Like he would never ask them to do anything that he wouldn't personally do himself. That he would he would risk more for himself than he would ask of anybody else. And so that's a, that's an easy thing to get behind, right? Those are easy leaders to attach to. If you have shared goals and you have 100% confidence of their commitment, that's really really compelling. Yeah, you get this character who has such a strong will and such a strong sense of purpose. The question becomes, is that purpose a little bit too selfish? And we like to frame things super positively here on Wonder Tour because we think that we can learn just about the same lessons from a positive reframe than we could from speaking negatively. So I think talking to Thorin's strong points, and again, we're leading into the Gandalf discussion here, kind of with this precursor discussion about Thorin, he has the team behind him and he really believes in the team. And we probably run into these leaders or have been these leaders or hopefully you not currently are, but you know, we might be. <laughs> We're confident in the team, but he seems to be confident in the team because of himself primarily. He's like, I'm here. And so as long as I'm here, we're going to make it to the mountain. We're going to defeat Smaug and he'll protect the people. He speaks for his people. Not always the best attribute in a leader necessarily, <laughs> but may, I don't know dwarf culture all that well. So maybe that is dwarf <laughs> culture that every time somebody poses a question towards them, it's, they're always looking towards Thor and like, is he going to answer? <laughs> Yeah, no, that's great. And and it's also the weaknesses we see there, right, are evident right up front in this first movie and just get exaggerated as the story goes along is the blind spots, right, is that he's so focused on the goal and he's so focused on the history and the tradition and the way of doing things and putting the world back the way it should be that he doesn't really understand other ways of looking at the world. He's happy to have Gandalf's help because he's pointed in the same direction. He doesn't really get why Bilbo needs to be on the mission. He's not very sympathetic with other characters. He doesn't make a great impression on the elves. <laughs> so he's, you know, he's very narrow in his focus. And that, um, as we'll talk about later, but that's, you know, it's unclear how that just dogged determination and inability to learn something new about the world is going to succeed in the long term. It's unclear why that was, why that's a path of success, even though he's going to work infinitely hard. And part of the reason we bring that up, of course, is to contrast him with Gandalf, who is 
as different of a kind of leader as it's probably possible to be. So what do you see from Gandalf in this movie? We, which is, and I love bringing this up because we've been referencing Gandalf as like the avatar incarnate of the magnanimous leader in a bunch of other episodes. So getting a chance to kind of circle back and talk about him here, I think is going to be fun. Oh, yeah, that we'll basically spend the rest of the time focused on Gandalf, and there's nothing better. He is the magnanimous leader when we talk Wonder Tour that you compare a lot of other magnanimous leaders to. I just think about how funny it is. Gandalf is this super visionary, magnanimous archetype. He doesn't even care that much about any specific missions because he lives so long, and his job as this wizard is a protector of the realm, essentially. So he's so focused on this macro picture. And then he's partnered with this huge team of dwarves, huge in comparison to the one Gandalf. And dwarves are so opposite. Dwarves are so narrow in their thinking. They're very convergent. Dwarves are like, if you had kind of all the negative attributes of an engineer all like baked into one, and you, you get a lot of engineering and operations all kind of like in the same mindset of just like, you know, let's just execute, let's just do stuff, let's just solve the problem, and they just run headlong into a lot of stuff, where Gandalf is such the opposite. He's playing the long game. He's always stepping back, being patient. It's just such a funny collision between that mindset and the dwarf mindset, which is like, okay, let's just go attack the trolls. Yes, well, and, and I think it's important to point out that when we're uh, hassling or criticizing uh, engineers and technical people on this podcast, it's completely self-deprecating. So. <laughs> yeah, yeah, we're not exactly that criticism <laughs> is, is just the negative, uh, the negative archetype that you can find yourself in. But yeah, exactly. These are, yeah, just, these are just the failure modes of my personality. I think it's what we're talking about. here. <laughs> That's why we're so comfortable with it. Yes, absolutely. But yeah, you're right. But it's interesting. Gandalf moves effectively among and works effectively with people of different personalities, right? He's, he's able to figure out who's in a position to, to need what in their learner's journey. And so the way he interacts with Thorin is very different than the way he interacts with Bilbo, but he's kind of doing the same thing. He's this mentor figure, and he sees opportunities that people have that they might not see themselves, or they, they might not see a path to themselves. And he encourages them out of their comfort zone. He encourages them to do things which are both aligned with his larger mission and which are personally good for them, will be personally rich or rewarding or growth experiences. Even if he's not 100% convinced that they can do it, he sees the opportunities, and that's kind of his mode, is he's looking for ways to give people opportunities to shine, to grow, to achieve their goals. And that's a really, uh, if you think about that, like being able to back off your own goals, to back off your own daily crises or existential concerns about the universe long enough to look at somebody else and see what they might need or who they might potentially be and put some personal energy into that, that's a really powerful thing. If you've ever had somebody do that for you, and I have, it's, it's amazing, right? If you've got that person who's looking out for you, looking over the hill and encouraging you in the right direction, that's a huge step. But then we see the other thing about Gandalf in this movie in particular is that he's not just like pointing them over the hill and patting them on the top of the head and you know, sending them off, right? He's walking shoulder to shoulder with them for much of the time. And again, if you have a mentor who is able to shepherd you in the right direction, let you stumble, let you fall, let you learn some things, but not let you get murdered by the trolls, that's a pretty powerful ally to have. That's a pretty powerful way to be set up for learning. 
Yeah, you can really start and build something from there. Don't let me forget to bring back in a story that I may or may not have brought in on Wonder Tour before, but it's one of those compounding concentric circles type stories. Like you said, you've had examples where somebody has Gandalfed for you and they have put your development ahead of their mission. And that is something extremely powerful. So maybe let's dive into the what if here, because I think the what if is going to take us right to the mountaintop. What if Gandalf doesn't recruit Bilbo? I teased it in the intro, but that's something that I've always thought about here is why does Gandalf have to recruit Bilbo? Yeah, this is great. It's easy to imagine why this is an adventure for Bilbo, but why is he there in the first place? For me, I think it goes back to what we were talking about Thorin and the blind spots, right? The dwarves weren't successful in fighting the dragon last time around. There's no reason to think that a much smaller number of older ones is going to figure it out just with the same approach. So Gandalf is, I think he's seeing that this thing needs to happen, it needs to succeed, but it's going to require some subtlety and it's going to require some fresh eyes and it's going to require someone with Bilbo's kind of gift of gab, you know, his his ability to talk his way into and out of things. Like that sort of flexibility of mind is something that the dwarves don't have in the party yet. They don't have it on the team yet. Yeah, that divergent mindset or that growth mindset that Bilbo can bring to the table is crucial. And I think it's all summed up in the best quote in this entire movie. And this will be our mountaintop. We're on like, actually, we're on the mountaintop in Rivendell, essentially. You're at like the High Council. You have Elrond there. You have Saruman there. You have Galadriel. And Gandalf is kind of pleading his case for the how by which we should accomplish the vision. They all kind of have this same vision of ridding the world of evil and bringing joy to all the beings in Middle-earth. Yet there's a disagreement on how they should go about it. And Gandalf's way is kind of encapsulated when he has this moment with Galadriel afterwards where he says, Saruman believes it is only great power that can hold evil in check. But that is not what I have found. It is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. Why Bilbo Baggins? Perhaps because I am afraid and he gives me courage. That's amazing. And that's a pretty sophisticated understanding. It's a very sweet sentiment, but it's also just thinking about for the world to continue spinning and for the world to continue building hope and building belief and building love. It's not only accomplished by stubborn people with hammers. You need the personal relationship skills. You need the people stretching outside of their comfort zones. You need the flexibility and fresh eyes of looking at the world and trying to see what's actually happening and not just what you have already assumed is happening. And we see that from top to bottom in this movie, right? There's a lot of characters with blind spots. In the scene you just talked about, Saruman's kind of the same way. He's like, oh, anyway, we have these three new facts, but they don't necessarily mean that anything new is happening. <laughs> right? So He's just confirming you know. his priors, right? He's still right. he's sticking too much to his priors that Sauron is far enough away that we shouldn't be worried about him and that our job in protecting the realm is secure right now. We're bringing joy and peace to the realm, and that's what we're here for, so... There's this concept in Lord of the Rings as a whole, right? Don't go stirring up evil. <laughs> right. Well, but it's also interesting that the failure mode of the good characters or the forces of order in this one is that they're not very subtle. Saruman's the example of that, right? Is that they're all about the banners and the giant armies on horses and the big towers and the huge power, right? And if they don't, and anything other than that, they just don't even notice. And the reason that evil is always portrayed as sort of creeping in from the margins and it's very subtle and it's insidious and it's, you know, it's, it's devious. And I think that's part of what Gandalf is recognizing here is that you can't fight devious, you can't fight insidious threats, you can't 
keep things from falling apart at the edges with brute force. You can only keep things from falling apart at the edges with everybody at the edges working for the, the mission, working for the good fight. And so Bilbo is one of those characters. He's not going to charge down the center of the formation on a horse <laughs> and go kill the biggest monster, right? That's not his job. It's like when you're in Return of the King, then of course Gandalf is leading the charges to the gates of Mordor because he's like, yeah, evil is here. <laughs> you know, we're seeing right. it incarnate. It's it's right in front of us. Like we can go headlong and fight it and we should even if we lose. That's the point is go headlong and fight it when that's the only option. But when good is generally triumphing right now, when the light is strong, there's evil at the edges and there's a disagreement between him and Elrond. And we see this with Elrond across the Lord of the Rings and the Middle Earth content. Elrond is generally okay with evil being at the edges, and he's just kind of protecting the boundaries, where we see characters like Gandalf and Galadriel who are taking the offensive against evil at all points. They're saying, if it exists, then we need to go after it. If Morgoth is out there, if Sauron is out there, we have to take them down. Right. Okay, so let's land this back in our world then. Most of us are not necessarily, you know, we may or may not be fighting insidious evil that threatens to destroy the world. The old wipe out the world ploy, as they say in The Mummy. But there are absolutely subtle problems that need to be combated. There's, you know, there's entropy everywhere, right? In our business worlds, in our personal lives, in our, you know, whatever we are faced with challenges, it's pretty rare that you get something that can be solved by a full frontal assault, right? It's pretty rare that you have the resources to do the, the grand charge down the center of the valley. So from a leadership lesson standpoint, what we're looking at from Gandalf here is that sense of empowering people from all walks of life about finding people who maybe could do something more than what they're challenging themselves to do and setting them off on that path. With the idea that the more and more of those people that we have out there, the more and more successful and confident and courageous people that we empower, the more likely it is that we can keep stuff under control. The more likely it is that they can craft the world that we're all dreaming about. So how does that live in our daily world? Like, what does that look like as a, as a leader? I like how you generalized that and tried to bring the idea of evil into our world, because like you said, we're kind of regardless of how you view evil and, and if you think that it's a thing or if you think that entropy and blah, blah, blah are all the either way, there's something always ripping at the edges and trying to pull the seams apart. There's something always pushing discomfort and discontinuity and distress between humans. So whatever that is, right, that's what we're after. The thing that's causing divisiveness and lack of unity between humans and causing humans, you know, to hurt each other, to work in a suboptimal way together. So how to work with that? And I think your first point there was great. You can't keep things from falling apart at the edges with brute force. You know, that's a good way to think about it. And maybe let's take the model and drop it down to a granular level so that we can bring it back to Gandalf's quote, where he's saying, it is the small everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay, small acts of kindness and love. So that first part of that quote there is beautiful. He is fighting evil at a granular level where Elrond and Saruman are fighting evil at this grand scale. They're so zoomed out that they're focused on, OK, well, evil is embodied in Sauron and we haven't seen him in a long time. So the world is good. Gandalf, his vision for flourishing is dwarves and elves and humans and hobbits and everybody all working in unison in Middle Earth. It's to not have that strife. He's seeking after this garden state where everybody can tend the garden together and work in unison. And so he sees this disunity as a force of evil that's tearing everything apart. And he is not OK with that. And so his whole leadership style is based on that exact concept. We need to fight evil at a granular level. And he knows that as one being, even if he's one of the most powerful beings in the universe, or at least in, in the Middle Earth part, 
he understands that he can't fight evil by himself. So what he has to do is bring up an army of all of the small lights that can fight back against the dark. And all of those small lights, whether they're hobbits or dwarves or whatever, right, we want to train them up in the right way, in the wise way of operating. And so his whole focus is on how do I multiply those people? How do I create more people who can do small acts of kindness and love? Because that's what's going to save us. Yeah, absolutely. And he's very flexible in the means that he deploys. Sometimes there's a big problem and you need a team with a charismatic leader to just go hammer at the problem until it goes away. Great. I'm going to spin up Thor and the dwarves and I'm going to send them in that direction because it would be better for us to solve the dragon problem now than after the dragons hooked up with the bad guys, right? You know, but whatever the problem is, right? It's not that there's no value in that charismatic, stubborn, passionate leader. Like that has a place. But at the same time, there is a place for people that you don't regard as heroes to perform key heroic roles. That's the what he does with Bilbo. But what I was thinking as you were talking was there's also a place for there are people who are keeping the darkness at bay every day today right now. They're in their jobs. They're in their hobbit holes. They're doing whatever it is they're doing. But they're every day just trying to make the world a little bit more orderly, trying to make the world a little bit more kind, trying to make the world a little bit more compassionate. And you need to find and encourage those people as well, right? And so that version of the compassionate leader, that version of the magnanimous leader that is aware of all those different ways of making the world better and who recognizes that we often overlook the subtler ones, we often overlook the less dramatic ones, that's a really powerful place to be. And it's not necessarily a place that comes from authority. It's a place that comes from awareness, from looking around and thinking deeply and having principles and having an opinion about the way the world could be and looking for opportunities to make it better. Like you said, we know people like that who maybe aren't the vice president, who aren't the charismatic project leader, but who are coming into work every day looking for opportunities to inspire somebody or to help them out or to point them in the right direction. Oh, man, you had a lot of good points in there. We've been kind of dancing around this darkness versus light narrative and the evil at the edges. I think maybe one model we could use to think about it is order versus disorder. Gandalf is an agent of order. He is trying to bring order to the universe. And let's say there's a difference between order and structure because Thorin is trying to bring structure to his universe. Gandalf is trying to bring order. And in Gandalf's order, Gandalf is not seeking to be the king. Gandalf is trying to seek order so that other people can work in harmony. I, I know going all the way back into the Silmarillion, and I know that most people may not have even read the Silmarillion, but that is one of the critical building blocks of this Lord of the Rings universe. It has this English creation narrative arc at the beginning of it where you have essentially God and the other godlike beings that are creating this world. And when they do it, the analogy that's given, whether it's a physical or conceptual analogy that Tolkien gives, is this creation of this symphony. Gandalf understands the symphony. A lot of these other leaders do not understand that this universe was created on a symphony. The whole point of the symphony was to have the races and the beings all working together, all playing their own instruments and their own parts and nobody, you know, nobody diverting away from the, the music. And how does that symphony get broken in the Silmarillion? Well, it gets broken because Melkor or Morgoth, you know, the original primeval here. For those of you who are only familiar with The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings, it's not going to come up for you, but he was the OG, and then Sauron was one of his lieutenants who came after him. Melkor breaks the symphony because he wants to lead a certain part of it. His pride doesn't allow him to play his specific role, even though he's really good at his specific role. 
And that's how he breaks the unity. And so Gandalf understands that his role in this universe is to get us back to that symphony. Wow. No, that's really cool. I hadn't connected all those dots before. But that idea that, you know, striving for order doesn't necessarily mean striving for stasis. The symphony is a great metaphor. The garden's a great metaphor. It's a thing that evolves and change and grows, but has an expected consistency to it, has a recurring pattern to it. So, hmm. all right, all right. I'm going to think about that one a little bit. Did you want to share your concentric circle story to bring it home here? Yeah, that's perfect. So I may have mentioned this before on the podcast, but I know not everybody will hear every episode. So one of the moments that I had where somebody had a Gandalf for me was I was in a co-op, you know, before I even started my career when I was in college. And I was at a company that I'm not going to mention necessarily, but I had a boss that summer when I was there. And in my, you know, I did a, a number of different things and I got a lot of great experiences. And then in my performance review at the end, you know, I got a whatever the best performance review you could get was, but that wasn't the point because my boss, Anne there, said, I don't think you should come back. She's like, we'll offer you a position, but I don't think you should come back. Basically, she now in Wonder Tour terminology, she said, this is a small world and you need to be in the big world. This is, you know, she had been there for 10 years or more than that. And she knew that she wanted me to develop. She wanted me to bring order to the world and to be able to do that, to be able to create a symphony. You know, she had the humility and the caring for somebody else to say, go be a part of the bigger symphony, basically. And I've been forever grateful for that. And I've tried to repay that favor whenever I can to other people where I have the opportunity to say, I have this mission that I'm on. And yet I'm going to try to put that aside and try to see through unbiased eyes, you know, what is best for this person? Even if I'd love to have them on the team, hey, there's a spot over here that I think is better for you. And I'm going to propose that for you because as much as it'd be good for you to be on my team, you know, I want you to be in the spot that you're going to flourish in. So I think that's just a tangible example of what being Gandalf is like. He's trying to bring back this symphony. He's trying to get everything to work together. And what that means is not his part of the symphony can be overpowering. He knows well, that he needs to humbly propel the symphony forward. Well, and you you just can't play all the instruments yourself, right? <laughs> like, that's not how it works. That's a fabulous story. And that's a really powerful statement, right? You know, when somebody when somebody's looking out for your interests, even potentially above theirs. And they're recognizing that you do have the ability to go off and thrive, right? You know, that they'll push you in the direction that might be uncomfortable. We'll talk a little bit more about discomfort in our second episode. Now that we've kind of gotten through the motivating force for this whole story, the leadership of looking at the big picture and trying to encourage people to participate in skillful ways and grow in skillful ways, which is Gandalf's role. For a second episode, I think we'll, what we can do is we can talk about it from the other lens of, all right, all right, well, if you're Bilbo, if you get pushed out of your small world and into this big, uncomfortable world where you don't have any of the requisite skills, what's that like? And how do you thrive in that environment? Because that's a necessary part of this approach, right? If the ordinary folk keeping the darkness at bay with everyday deeds is something we aspire to, then most of us, most of the time, are ordinary folk doing small deeds. Most of us, most of the time, are not Gandalf. So what's that like and how do you approach that? I think that'll be really fun to kind of dig into. I love it, Brian. All right, let's bring the keep takeaways here. So I think number one is you can't keep things from falling apart at the edges with brute force. You said it very well, but that's one thing we see from Gandalf is that he sees the disorder that is ripping at the edges, ripping at the seams, and he doesn't want to fight it with brute force. He wants to fight it at a tiny granularity the size of a hobbit. 
Two, Gandalf's an agent of order. His vision is for the symphony. His vision is for the garden that we talk about here. He's trying to create this world where humans and orcs and dwarves and elves and everybody else could all work together and it could all work together to build the symphony. And so because of that, he understands that hope and belief is not accomplished by strictly like carpentry or masonry and stuff like that. That's a very kind of dwarf way of thinking about it, is that we're going to build up this world by building it one building block at a time. He knows that it's more complicated. There's additional dimensions that you have to take into account that aren't necessarily physical, right? You have the way that I would describe it is when you're creating a symphony, you have to do some weaving. The threads have to be crossing each other. The dimensions have to be interacting with each other. You can't just strip out the models into its core dimensions and variables and then just put them all back together into something cohesive. They actually have to overlap and string together with each other. And so when you're building that team like Gandalf is to be able to be an agent of order, to build the symphony, to combat the evil at the edges, you got to do it more as a weaver than as a carpenter. Yeah, the hope and belief is, is a subtle art. <laughs> exactly. Yes, that's awesome. All right. Well, I think that's a great place to leave our uh, first episode on The Hobbit, An Unexpected Journey. We look forward to seeing everyone next time as we talk about our second episode on this one. And we're going to focus more on Bilbo's journey. The unexpected journey itself will be our center point. So look forward to coming back for that one. And just remember, in the meantime, character is destiny. 